Hi, I'm Eva Makovic, and you're listening to the Reader's Digest podcast, in which we navigate the woes and wonders of modern life with leading experts on the tools you need to survive and thrive in 2019. On today's show, Anna Walker speaks to Paul Dolan, who's a professor of behavioral science at the London School of Economics, about his new book, Happy Ever After, which explains how to escape the myth of perfection and find your own route to happiness. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's the subtitle to your book, but I think it's worth exploring for starters what you mean by the myth of the perfect life. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to talk to you about it. It's, um, there's a lot of stories about how we should live, social narratives around what we ought to do in our lives. We ought to be rich and successful and clever and get married and have kids. And sometimes these things are good for us, but they're not good for everybody. And so really, it's just a very simple message that says, just take a moment to reflect on whether the things that you're told that you ought to do in your lives actually are good for you. And if they are, great, carry on and do them. But if they're not, well, you don't have to. And to try to break down some of those judgments that we make about ourselves and other people who don't live lives according to the one-size-fits-all approach. Mm. And and what exactly is it about this concept of happily ever after that's so damaging to our personal happiness? Well, it's the idea that you're going to, once you've ticked these boxes, that you've achieved it in some sense, you've made it, and and that you're going to be happy. Well, two things. One is that you might be making enormous sacrifices along the way of the journey in order to succeed, say, to be rich and successful, or even to get married and have kids. And you've made all these kind of sacrifices and trade-offs in order to achieve those things, that you've been miserable on the way. And or you might be miserable even with those outcomes themselves. And again, the data, you know, that, 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 that you know, we, we can talk about some of these narratives in a bit more detail, but they're not unequivocally good for us to achieve these things and tick off those boxes so again it's just a little circumspection allowing people to reflect a little on their lives and the lives of those that they influence like their children for example in ways that might give them a kind of richer set of opportunities to live by and of course when people sort of follow this traditional path of maybe marriage monogamy children yeah perfect job and they don't feel happy after it there's a real sort of stigma around the idea that these things don't make you happy. What's wrong with me if, if my children aren't making me happy, my marriage isn't making well, me happy? Well, there really is. I mean, we can talk about the children, then, say, for example, because the evidence is it's pretty clear. Children are at best neutral on, <laughs> on, <laughs> on our effects on happiness. And you know, anyone that's honest as a parent will know that children bring moments of joy, but very long periods of misery, worry, <laughs> stress, and anxiety. I mean, that, that you wouldn't have if you didn't have children. Mm. Yet when I said that very obvious fact when I was talking about my first book, Happiness by Design, some of the online abuse I got was amazing. People were like, I'm a bad parent, they feel sorry for the kids. What, because they're just not all the time making me happy? Sets up these false expectations, and you're absolutely right. If you're one of those parents, like every other parent, that is actually, I'm not enjoying some of this, you can't say that out loud, and you're not even allowed to feel it because it's not what you ought to be feeling, and therefore you feel bad about yourself and, and think you're a bad parent, when actually it's entirely normal. Yeah, so taboo that we don't really acknowledge as taboo. But what are some of the positive impacts you discuss them in the book that can come from not having children on our happiness? From children, yeah. So, well, the the most significant at the moment is environmental impact, mm. which is which which is never discussed. If you engaged in six behaviours that were 
considered to be pretty green, right? So, for example, one of those would be driving half as many miles next year as you did last year. They're pretty significant behaviour changes. You're talking about 500 tonnes of CO2 offset. One fewer child, 10,000 tonnes of CO2 offset. Wow. So it's an incredible... So, in a good way, by not having children, you're saving the planet for those people that do have them. So that's a very selfless thing to do. Um, and actually, leaving the selflessness to one side, some of the happiest and healthiest population subgroups with the longest life expectancies are women that have never married and never had children. And yet they're a group, women in particular, that are kind of, oh, well, isn't that a shame? Bless mm. them. Maybe one day they'll meet the right guy and that'll all change. They're just doing really well without men and without yeah. being married and without having kids. But we don't like to um, accept that version of happiness as readily, I suppose. We don't. And it's really interesting that we judge other people very harshly. Single people are treated really badly. They're treated badly in workplaces. They're treated in ways that you could never get away with by race and gender. Um, and we judge them to be less good people. So if you present people um, scenarios of people's lives and set out all the things they do and achieve and stuff, and then you say whether they're married single by choice or single because they haven't yet found anybody the people that are seen as the least happy the least good the least virtuous are the single by choice group Mm. the ones that have actually volitionally decided not to have children (laughs) are the ones that we think are less good than the ones even who are trying to and certainly much less so than the ones that are married so yeah we do we, 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 we make these judgments as I say not just about our own lives but about the lives of other people too and we just want to get away from doing that I think I think you talk about as well as sort of um, pleasurable reaction that we have when we do judge people based on these social narratives or conforming to these things. Yeah, we can feel good when we punish people as well, right? So that that sets up that, that sets off the you know, pleasure senses to put that in a very colloquial term in the brain. We also a lot of people like hierarchies and structures. Social dominance orientation is called in the academic literature. You know the degree to which you believe in hierarchies and structures and systems. And if you're one of those kinds of people, then seeing difference. Um, for example, not just whether people are married or not, but whether they um, are successful in work and may not take on the characteristics of people that are deemed to be successful, mm. um, then they're judged very harshly for doing that because they represent a threat. So, for example, if you're a working-class person who makes it in a middle-class occupation, you have to become middle-class mm. because if you don't, if you retain some of the attitudes, behaviours and values of your working-class roots people will see that as a threat because if any if that working class person can make it then anyone can and what's the whole point of this class system mm. right? and then people feel threatened so you have to take on so you get judged very harshly if you don't conform to what's expected of you as you move up the ladder and that's something you've spoken about experiencing yourself in the academic world before too yeah i mean i got you know i don't read novels right i don't i go body but I, I wait i used to body but I, I weight train um and um i go clubbing well, I did anyway, not, <laughs> not, not really so much now. And I mean, it's quite flattering in one way that people cared so much about that that people were willing to judge me. Oh my god, the novels thing! I was like, how can I? You know, it was like, really. I mean, it's really quite betrayal. No, I don't really. I don't care. So not only am I expected to act in certain ways in work, right? I'm expected to act in certain ways out of work. Mm. I'm expected to use my leisure time in ways that conform with the stereotypes of my job. LSE professor bodybuilding. What's that all about, right? Well, I don't care if they if other profs play tennis or croquet or god knows what else they do i don't i genuinely don't care as long as they're good at their job that's what really counts and it just it just really struck me that why would you know because people care because it's a threat i don't yeah. i don't want i want to put you in a pigeon i want to put you in a box we like to put people into boxes and i want the box to conform to what i think it should look like and if you're outside of that then i'm gonna be judgmental of it 
And so while we're on the subject of children as well, you, yeah. you also discussed that obligation in another direction <coughs> that children can feel towards a parent who might be toxic or detrimental to their life in some way to say in their lives. Yeah, did you pick up on that bit? So, I, it, yeah, I, it's really interesting that we... Um, we don't talk very much about adult children, mm. right? Um, I mean, most people now have our children until they're, I don't know, whatever, 50, 60. <laughs> we don't think of them as kids. Yeah. Uh, but they are someone's kids. And the relationship with their parents is quite significant. And so, um, yeah, oftentimes you think, you know, a child can do almost anything and the parents will still love them. Mm. Um, you know, commit the most heinous crimes and parents will go and visit them in prison. But upset the parent... <laughs> Well, that's that's another level, yeah. right? And then the then the parents will, you know, there's quite serious sanctions sometimes for how parents will treat their children if they upset them. And does this sort of come back to? I wondered that a lot of these um, sort of narrative expectations seem to come back to quite a biblical way of how we live our lives. So that honour your mother and father, <coughs> yeah. the sanctity of marriage. Do you think that's part of where this strength of these ideas comes from? Yeah, I think I never got so I haven't got into the etiology of the narratives in the book. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm less concerned about the causes. I'm much more concerned about the consequences. Sure. And that's a book in itself. The evolutionary advantage that might come from them, the religious connotations that come from those narratives, the uh, the power dynamics that exist in society around class and gender, race to some degree as well, um, that create these stories. Um, you know, for example, in relation to monogamy. Um, hugely beneficial to men um, if they can contain the sexual behaviours of their wives. Mm. Um, so there's good there's good reasons why you would have these uh, organising principles. Um, I'm less interested in those. I'm more, I'm more interested in, given that they exist, given that they've lasted the test of time for whatever reasons, do they do us any good? Yeah. Are they actually good for us? And as I say, some people some of the time, but certainly not all of us all of the time. And as we're coming up to Valentine's Day, this will oh be God, our February yeah. podcast this year. <laughs> I know, probably. Sorry, I should um, say, oh yeah, great, brilliant, no, I can't wait. Not shaking your head. No. <laughs> well, we're raised to believe that monogamous relationships, as you yeah. just touched on, are sort of akin to the zenith of human experience, finding your soulmate and being yeah. faithful forever. But in terms of research, does, does the science sort of say marriage makes us any happier than the alternative? Well, so we certainly think we should be married. We, you know, still, and that's actually really interesting that the numbers on this haven't really changed very much. And if anything, they've increased. The number of people who think that it's morally unacceptable to have an affair, for example, remain at around three quarters mm. um, of, of people. And you know, yet the facts are that, of course, many, many people do. But come, I'll come back to that in a second. But on the, on the marriage issue, I mean, it, it, the evidence is, is mixed. You're certainly happier being married if your spouse is in the room while you fill out the survey, <laughs> which isn't quite the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> which isn't quite the same thing. But that's where the most—that's where the biggest effect of marriage is. The biggest effect of marriage is when your spouse is looking over your shoulder when you're saying how happy you are. Uh, when they're not in the room, you're 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 you're, you're a whole lot less happy. Um, marriage in 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 most societies is actually good for men. Um, we calm down basically. We stop acting like idiots. <laughs> Take less risks and live a bit longer, um, get promotions at work, you know. But but women, it's it's very it's really not 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 uh, clear. As I, as I say, some of the healthiest and happiest people are women, women that they're married. She has to put up with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so he so he gets more from marriage than, than she does. Uh, on average, of course, it's on on average. Um, when you factor in the fact that you could get divorced and the whole process of separation and the misery that comes through that separation process in particular. Um, not at all obvious what the, what the overall benefits of marriage are. So culturally, men sort of 
well, not culturally, men stand to gain more from being married, and yet culturally women are seen as the people that are I pushing know, it's for it's interesting, this. isn't it? It is, it is, it is. And they're kind of, you know, sort of desperate if they, if they haven't got <laughs> married by the time they're 40. But in relation to the monogamy point as well, again, you know, it's like, it's, it's a really, I want to make this very, very clear. I'm not suggesting anything about what people do. Mm. If, you, if you are in and want to be in, and what, want to be in, whether you're in or not, a committed monogamous relationship from now till you die knock yourself out do it that's fantastic I'm, I'm totally happy that you'll be happy doing that if you're not I don't want to judge you for not being like that that's a very you know, again a really simple but powerful point is as long as you're not harming other people you know work out what works for you and the latest evolutionary uh, theories are that actually women are more promiscuous on average than we have suspected so the idea was that for example when women get married and they go off sex. They're not actually going off sex. They're going off sex with her with her husband. Mm. That women want more sexual variety than men do. That he's still happy to keep having sex with the same. I'm putting all this in very vague terms. Yeah. There's huge heterogeneity across the population, of course. Right? Let's make that very clear. But you know, she she actually does still want sex and enjoy sex, but just not with the same person. Which is kind of the polar <laughs> opposite of what we're Exactly. Told. And for genetic diversity, that makes a lot of sense because you want genetic diversity in your offspring mm-hmm. for evolutionary advantage. So so what 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 she might do then is have a child with somebody else that's then raised by the person that thinks they're the father. <laughs> so you can see why he wouldn't want her to do that because if he's going to invest resources and time and energy into children, he'd ideally like them to be his. So there's a you know there's a there's a kind of tension that sits there, but the story is nearly always constructed on the basis of, well, really what suits men, I think, mm. um, certainly around sexual behaviours. Um, that 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 you know that story is that she doesn't want it anymore. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's not true. She just doesn't want it with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's far more depressing for the men involved. <laughs> it's, it's far more depressing <laughs> for the men involved. <laughs> and you also suggest that consensual, non-monogamous relationships are going to become more and more common. What's it going to take for yeah, society? They might. Might, might. I don't know. I don't know. And again, you know, I don't. The evidence. Because what, what I'd like from an academic perspective is to conduct randomized controlled trials <laughs> and allocate people randomly to different states. Mm-hmm. Monogamy, not you know, whatever consensual non-monogamous. And, and of course, we we can't do that because you can't establish a treatment effect. So you have a huge selection effect of different types of people into these different relationships. There's no causal data. It's entirely speculative on the basis of the evidence that we have, but. The evidence is that they're not, you know, they're not doing any less well mm. than monogamous relationships are, um, and that we probably might see an increase in them if only we could be a little bit more accepting of them, or we might not. I mean, this whole thing was made about decriminalising homosexuality that everyone's suddenly going to become gay. Mm. Well, they're not, are they? I mean, that's you know, people are gay, certainly gay men anyway, are gay long before any of the laws came about when they're in vitro yeah. right so so that's not going to change any change anything uh, it's just more it just makes their lives a lot easier if we accept the fact that they're gay and it would make uh, people in cnm relationships happier if we accepted theirs too definitely i think your um experiment could work pretty well as a reality tv show <laughs> the way of establishing <laughs> yeah. that yeah <laughs> how is internet dating changing things <clears throat> with the way we look at monogamy and relationships oh, that's a good question internet dating I mean the, the mere act of swiping is quite commoditizing of people isn't it mm. I mean you kind of do that when you're shopping and it becomes like a shopping experience I think you know you're kind of searching through 
finding the best pair of shoes, finding the best person. And never being satisfied because you can just keep going. Um, again, it's interesting. I think I, I saw somewhere, I don't know how robust these data are, but about a quarter of people on Tinder are in relationships. Yeah, I was shocked when I um, read that. And what, you thought it was higher? <laughs> yeah, I thought 90%. <laughs> 90, no, yeah. I, I didn't think but it was that it, high. But what's interesting about that is that, um, from my understanding, again, I don't know how robust these data are, that about half of the men on there don't have sex. They just do it as a validation exercise, mm. uh, essentially. But the, the women on there do. And again, it speaks to this divert to this uh, variability diversity thing that they actually kind of you know want to have sex with somebody else. Mm. Um, and so, but anyway, leaving that to one side, the, those that run there to find a, a partner, um, it's, it's constantly keep going. You know, in the old days, you used to just meet someone who lived within a few blocks of you, a few streets, or that you work with, or you might have bumped into on the bus or something. Yeah. And that was it. You had a choice of about half a dozen people. <laughs> So you were quite happy with the one you ended up with. Yeah. But now that half a dozen has turned into half a million or something. There's so many people you could potentially date. So I think you're kind of constantly commoditizing and, 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 and assessing who you're with against these other yardsticks, which is not good for us uh, on uh, balance. But we still have this, this narrative of finding the one. Yeah. I mean, what an absurd... I mean, who ever thought of that? Right? On this entire planet, this entire <laughs> planet, there's one person for you. No, there's lots of people that will do. <laughs> but it's such an enticing idea, isn't it? People want their lives to all come down to one serendipitous moment. To one serendipitous moment. It feels like it gives us more meaning. It does. It's a really nice story. And then we have that story of love around passionate love, essentially, lasting forever. You know, I, I love him like I did when I met him. You absolutely don't. Mm. And if you do, you've got a pathological relationship. You have passionate love for about a year, 18 months, a couple of years uh, at most, before it starts turning into companionate love, mm. which means that the passionate love, which is very attention-seeking in those early days, is arousing, but in bad ways as well as good ways. Right? So it's, it's, it's uncertain, it's, it's making you a bit anxious. It's a bit like taking drugs. It's a bit like taking you know, cocaine. It's, it has huge benefits to people that take it, but also has downsides. And that's what passionate love is like. And I use cocaine because the brain imaging studies when, when people are taking, taking coke are very much similar to when they see their passionate love partners. So, but that then turns into companionate love. So you can then get on with life's projects. Which is a stuff, good thing. Which is a good thing. Exhausted. Like having kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? exactly. You know, you don't, actually probably don't want to have kids in the passionate love stages. Too much attention going on yeah. elsewhere. You want the companionate love. So, so, when, so when people say, oh, the love has died or the, you know, the passion's gone, Thank God. Passion should go. And then you need to accept that you're in a companionate love stage or actually accept that you're someone who's maybe driven, you know, like drug user, you know, driven by the passion, by the excitement and have another relationship that's passionate love driven. But not, but, but, but don't think that passion is always going to last. That's a very silly story. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a story that we're brought up on with sort of fairy tales with the and Disney, Disney films. Um, and yeah, yeah. It just sort of reinforces that. And they lived happily ever after. You just don't see what happens next, which is yeah. probably the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for most of us, I mean, the lion's share of our time is spent not focusing on these relationships necessarily, but at work. Mm. And yet so many of us stay in jobs where we're not happy, simply because being in a highly regarded profession somehow feels more important than that everyday happiness. Yeah. Why do we um, hold high pressure demanding jobs in such high regard like this? Well, I think we all seek status. Um, and and maybe in the workplace, men to, men to some degree more than women still, although that may be uh, changing. Um, and it makes us feel good when we're thinking about how it makes us feel. 
this doesn't make us feel good for most of the time that we're not thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we kind of get into this arms race of sort of working longer hours, um, you know, having to sacrifice lots of things in order to get that status. And what I think is really interesting, because this is obviously not just about individuals, but about society too. And we have this, when we talk about social mobility and aspirations, we're nearly always talking about better paying jobs. Yeah. Which often don't make people happier. Again, correlational data, but hairdressers and florists are happier than bankers and lawyers. And I reckon part of that's causal, apart from the fact that people select into those occupations based on how happy they are. But if you think about the attributes of jobs like floristry and hairdressing, you get to work with people that want to work with you. They generally enjoy what they experience as a result of what you've done. You get quick and quite immediate feedback on the fruits of your labour in ways that bankers and lawyers don't. Now, we could, what we should then try to do is try to make banking and lawyer more like floristry yeah. and hairdressing rather than say that we don't need bankers and lawyers because of course we do. But it's just, it's just interesting that we want these, these aspirations for, for people, that jobs that might not always make them happy and that require them to sacrifice an enormous lot in order to achieve those jobs. Going back to the earlier point, which includes fitting in with the people in those environments. You know, we do a very good job in the higher education sector and LSE in particular at now getting people from lower socioeconomic groups into higher education and LSE is at the forefront of that and the vanguard and I'm very proud of that about my institution but we take them into the into our higher education uh, institutions LSE included we basically turn them into middle class people yeah. we take working class undergraduates and turn them into middle class graduates so they find ways because it's harder to fit in you know we don't do it deliberately although sometimes institutions do but the, the environments are shaped and designed in ways that force you to fit in or leave um, and so the ones that are left that become successful are a selection effect of people who have changed in order to become more like the people that they end up being and therefore they become psychologically disconnected from the people they were before and often physically and they move physically away. they move away they physically move 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 away and so you so you have very few genuine advocates of working class people for working class people because they don't exist they've changed it's literally like it would be literally like changing genders when you become more successful you start off as a female and you have to become a male and by the time you become a male you don't remember what it's like to be female and that's exactly what happens with social class I imagine the sort of digitalization of our workforce must be having an impact on this happiness as well. I mean, I'm lucky yeah. something I enjoy about my job is I work on a magazine and at the end of the month I'm holding that magazine and I it's can see it. It's tangible, it's real. It's yeah. tangible, but in many other sectors that just doesn't exist anymore. No. You work and work and you don't see a physical result. No, it's lovely seeing this physical magazine in front of Thank me. You. It's really no, 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 it's, good news. <laughs> no, it is actually, <laughs> it, you know, we have evolved to touch our kind of technological revolution has gone way, way quicker than, than our human evolution. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... it's it's. I, I've, I've said, you know, in various places before about the, the harmful effects that social media, for example, can be having on us that magnify these stories in ways that force us to promote ourselves in ways that lead to further magnification. So looking at sort of what we've talked about as a whole, how can people use this sort of knowledge or this new way of looking at the way we're told to live our lives in order to make themselves happier on a day-to-day basis what can they do mm. well i think the first step so what i tried to do in this book uh, is to alert people to the narratives 
what they then do about it, it's up to them. It's like the first, so in behavior change, the first, whatever therapy or whatever people are going through, it doesn't really matter. The first stage is acceptance. It has to be quite ironic for people that in order to change how, I, how I'm acting, I have to accept how I'm acting. Because mm. you think actually I just need to beat myself up a bit more, but that doesn't work at all. That's entirely counterproductive. So I'm really at the acceptance stage. This is the acceptance stage. This is the bit where we're drawing attention to the fact that some of what you do might be motivated out of what other people think you should be doing. And just to think about whether that's good for you or not. And that's it. I mean, that's a hard enough challenge in itself. That acceptance stage is the first hurdle. It's a big hurdle. What they then do about it, that's up to them. In the first book, I talked about how you can, in Happiness by Design, I spoke about how you can design your environments in ways to make it easier for you to be happier. And what I was alert to is that there's lots of obstacles and barriers in the way of even deciding what's going to make you happy in the first place, which is what I tried to uh, um, address in this book. Yeah, well, thank you very much for joining us. 